welcome back to Stream Again, the podcast where we try and uh, hope we can explain the chaos of the streaming universe to you, dear listener. I am your host, Chris Barlow. We are back from our little summer vacation, and I am joined, as always, by the Queen of the Andals and the First People and the Dragons or something. She sits on the Iron Throne in Brooklyn. I'm talking, of course, about Diane Nora. Diane, welcome back. Thank you. I'm so excited to be back. It's been an eventful few weeks, Chris. Truly eventful. Here we are, thinking that we can pre-record anything in the fast-paced streaming world. Uh, if you have forgotten what our last episode was about, dear listener, it was not about the chaos at HBO Max, which is what this episode is all about, baby. Get excited and a little uncomfortable, because I like HBO Max, and I don't want bad things to happen to it. Uh, but first, I want to do a quick follow-up on our last episode. We reviewed The Resort. I am still very very intrigued by this show, enjoying it a lot. And the news we have is that NBC is feeling a little, I don't know, saucy about the resort? They're interested in it. I can't tell if this means it's doing well on Peacock or doing poorly on Peacock or just they're trying to make anyone pay attention to Peacock. But what's happening uh, and what has already happened by the time you listen to this, dear listener, is that NBC aired the pilot of the resort on NBC. So this is a streaming Peacock show aired on NBC ahead of the resort's season finale. So what they're hoping is some people catch it, binge it, and then tune into the season finale next week, hopefully driving some interest to Peacock. Uh, I, I'm excited about that just because I like the show, and it's weird, and it's interesting, and I think they should give it more play. Diane, do you think this is a good sign for the show, or is this just Peacock being Peacock? I think it's a great sign for the show. I do think they're trying to get people over to Peacock, but I think it shows that they have belief in the show, that they think the show can bring people there. And also I think it shows a, a great deal of faith in the creators of the show and also the two leads who have that sitcom background, which we talked about in our last review, that really can draw viewers even on a major broadcast network. Yeah, I think that's it, too. And I think they're really recognizable sitcom faces. So they're hoping that people who are watching the lead in, which I believe is like America's Got Talent. Yeah, it's a, a, yeah. A, a live results telecast of America's Got Talent, which is about as high octane as summer network television gets. So they're really hoping people just see some familiar faces and uh, stick around or just leave the TV on in the background and find themselves intrigued by the mystery which, if you, dear listener, don't know the mystery we're talking about, check it out in our last episode, where we reviewed the resort. And we will, of course, watch the finale and share our thoughts a little bit later this fall in a Rewind review. But that reminds me, it is almost the fall. We are back from our summer vacations, and we want to know, you know, what should we watch? I'm done being at the beach with my books, trying to enjoy people and spaces and, and nature. Gross. I want to stream everything coming out this fall. And I don't have the uh, self-control to look these things up myself. So instead, dear listener, you can email us, podcast at streamageddon.com. Tell us what you want us to watch this fall, and we will watch it and talk about it here on the podcast. Uh, I'm pretty excited for many fall shows. I can tell you are too, Diane. Mm. Oh, yeah. I'm looking forward to Andor specifically. I think you Ooh, are too. Disney Plus, mm -hmm. yes. Bring mm -hmm. me back my weird yeah. Star Wars shows. Yeah. Also the new Lord of the Rings. I'm I'm going franchisey. You really are. I am not <laughs> not excited for the new Lord of the Rings, but hey, I will have to watch it because if you spend that much money, I will at least show up to see what it was all about. Uh, you know, I I admit I wound up liking the new season of Stranger Things, but I tuned in because I had to know where all that money went. 
Thanks for taking that sacrifice for the team. <laughs> I do. I do. I try. And that's what we do here on Streamageddon. We make streaming understandable, or at least digestible, or at least the stomachache it gives you, you know why. It was a big binge. You know, you overdid it a bit. We all do here in the streaming universe. And you know what place is really overdoing it on the streaming news right now? HBO. Specifically, HBO Max, which is, of course, part of Warner Brothers Discovery, which we will repeatedly refer to as Wabro Disco, so just get that in your head now. Wabro Disco, a lot easier to say than Warner Brothers Discovery. Uh, and, and more fun. And yes, and just like, listen, this is, people are people are freaking out a little bit. That happened while we were on vacation. And I want to remind you, streaming is fun. Except for the part where people are losing their jobs and their work is being erased from the universe. But otherwise, streaming is fun. So again, Wabro Disco. Which freaked everyone out just a couple of weeks ago when we all thought that HBO Max was just going to explode or implode or just we'd wake up and it would be deleted from all our phones. Uh, why do you think that happened, Diane? What That panic was so sudden, so extreme, and then kind of nothing happened. I think part of that is just what happens when you're a little bit too online. And I would never accuse either of us, Chris, no. of being too online, oh, nor any of our listeners, I'm sure. But perhaps sometimes if you spend, say, maybe those hours when you can't sleep in the middle of the night looking at Twitter instead of reading a lovely book, you might be under the impression that because Batgirl is never going to be released. There will be no more movies. That's it. (laughs) Batgirl's never going to be released. The movies are over. HBO is over. We're packing it up and we are becoming a culture of uh, oral storytellers. Yeah, that's what that means. It's just going to all fade to black like Tony Soprano. That's right. HBO's been planning this all along. Uh, Yeah, I do think you're right that Batgirl was the uh, straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. People were already feeling very uncomfortable about a long list of cancellations and reorganizations that we're going to get into at HBO Max. And then the event that really pushed people over the edge was the news that Batgirl, which has been completed and is in post-production, is just going to disappear and no one's ever going to see it. And they are using it, uh, Walbro Disco is using it, as a tax write-off. They're just declaring the whole thing a loss, which was messy because they initially made it sound like they thought the movie was unsalvageably bad. And in reality, Mm. the story that came out is, well, it's in an early post-production stage, no movie is great. And then on top of, at that stage, let's say, uh, and on top of that, it's a DC Universe movie, so it's probably not that great to begin with. I just have to put that out there. Like, none of these DC Universe movies are that good so far. So, it, it, you know, and it was made for HBO Max, not for theaters. And eventually right. what what they kind of backpedaled to at Wabro Disco was that they didn't see a way to uh, viably do reshoots to make it a theatrical release, and they didn't want to release it on streaming directly. And and that has held true for a lot of their strategy moves since the Wabro uh, merger with Disco. So we'll get into that a bit. But, 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 but. 
That's so much. There's just so much. Diane and I had like a, a moment of pure horror looking at our notes before this episode. Because <laughs> we're like, where do we begin? How do we talk about this? And I thought, especially because now we have a bit of distance, it's been a few weeks since all the drama unfolded. Uh, let, let's zoom all the way out. HBO has survived so much worse than this. I just have to say, like, this is actually a good time to be HBO. HBO Max different story. We will talk about it. But HBO, the core product, uh, it has had a, a really wild time uh, in its history, which begins way back in the 70s when cable was just trying to make cable happen. I want to focus on their weird corporate mergers and how they've survived some really bizarre uh, tectonic shifts in society. Uh, and that, of course, involves Time Warner, which owned uh, HBO for a long time. Fun fact, you might think HBO was from the Warner Brothers side of Time Warner. It is not. It is from the Time Life side of Time Warner. You know, where they make like Time Magazine, Magazines. Life Magazine, <laughs> Life Serial, whatever they did at Time Life. That was where HBO came from. They then got purchased by Warner when Warner purchased Time Life and they became Time Warner. And that was a cool time in the 90s, people figuring things out, HBO kind of beginning the process of coming in to its own. I, I mean, remember, HBO was really more of like a movie network with, uh, mm. you know, the Larry Sanders show in the 90s. They didn't have nothing, but they were not the juggernaut that they are today by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, and they really were a premium cable product. Uh, and then the internet started to be a thing. And so in 2001, AOL bought Time Warner in what uh, has to be the most cataclysmic corporate merger perhaps of our lifetimes. Like, you really need to go back and think how nonsensical that was. AOL, in the year 2000, was so flush with cash, they bought Time Warner, and then immediately AOL stopped being relevant, and their finances collapsed. And uh, fun fact... Jeff Bukas, who uh, was CEO of Time Warner uh, for a while in the 2000s, Jeff Bukas reportedly described the AOL-Time Warner merger as the biggest mistake in corporate history. This is a man who at the time worked for AOL Time Warner and eventually became the CEO of Time Warner when they dropped the AOL from the brand name in 2003 because, ew, what a what a dark time. It reminds me of like when MSNBC meant like Microsoft NBC. You're like, what? Why? What? Well, I, I just blocked that out from my memory. But in 2003, uh, HBO was really at the height of its powers in terms of programming. It was just really beginning to blow up, yeah. Sex and the City came out in 98. Sopranos came out in 99. So really those mega shows were at the, at the height in terms of both comedy and drama. Yeah, yeah. So obviously they were beginning to be kind of the crown jewel of some kind of Time Warner uh, you know, entertainment unit. However, at the time, cable in general was a lot bigger, and the other parts of Time Warner, like the Turner Networks and CNN, doing really well. Jump ahead to 2015, 2016, the world is starting to go crazy for something called streaming. And while Jeff Bukas may sound very prescient when he says that the AOL Time Warner merger was a disaster, he also totally discounted Netflix and streaming for a while. So not as, you know, visionary as you might hope. And so uh, we get to the time that AT&T suddenly gets involved. Why? Because in 2016, everybody had to have a streaming service. Verizon had a streaming service called Go90. Do you remember Going 90? No. 
You don't? What was every? It was it was this wild <laughs> idea where you would rotate your phone ninety degrees to watch a video, which now we don't do. We just watch them in portrait like animals. Wild. I know. Verizon tried to tame us, and they just couldn't. They just couldn't. And so AT&T jumps in, and they say, we want a piece of this um, unprofitable pie. And they purchase Time Warner, which drags out for a bizarre amount of time because the Trump administration did not like CNN, and that's just a thing that happened. And at the end of all of this, AT&T finally acquires Time Warner. They are really excited to get this into the streaming, like, they, they want to juice the streaming game at Time Warner. At the time, HBO is riding high on season six of Game of Thrones. And at this point, HBO has not one, but two streaming services, because again, they weren't very visionary about how streaming would work. And so you had HBO Go, and you had HBO Now, and they were both okay, and they would both crash on Game of Thrones night, and we all just dealt with it. And AT&T walked in and said, yeah, you guys are doing it. And I guess compared to AT&T, they were, but that's not saying much, right? No, and to say that we were dealing with it seems generous, because I think I was tearing my hair out every time those apps crashed. Always, always. And so at this point... AT&T walks in and there's a famous uh, story about an all hands meeting where they basically came into HBO and said, we love what you're doing, guys. We want you to do like five times more of it with the same budget, the same staff. Just you already have like good shows. Can you just make more of those, please? That that was not a great start to the AT&T HBO relationship, which eventually gave us HBO Max. And eventually, through a global pandemic, we all learned to love HBO Max. But it was not that way when HBO Max launched. We all thought HBO Max was a dumb name with weird ads that had Batman next to Rachel from Friends. Yeah, it did seem like a very thrown together group of programming. Like it didn't Part of what HBO's brand has always been is this really um, cultivated group of only the best stuff. And then to see, you know, yeah, friends, all these things together, they didn't really fit. No. There was no aesthetic. No, there wasn't. And when people asked why they chose the name HBO Max versus like WB or Warner Max, everyone just said, well, people know the HBO brand better. There's just people like the the idea of HBO more than they like the idea of Warner Brothers, which is true. But that's because HBO stands for all those things you just described. The high quality prestige of cable, the, the, the cream of the crop, the storytelling that is so good and so cutting edge and maybe so, you know, adult. Or on the or, or niche doesn't even have to be that mm. it's all you know um, Game of Thrones style uh, murder and rape. It could just be the Larry Sanders show, which was not for everyone, but was groundbreaking television. The conundrum that was always at the heart of HBO Max was that they wanted to take the crown jewel of their media empire, HBO, and make it the bedrock for a all things for all people streaming service that included. Uh, animation, kids and family programming, movies, a lot of HBO Max original movies, and through the pandemic, Warner movies that were supposed to go to theater, like Dune, redirected to HBO Max under the, the direction of then Warner chief Jason Kylar, whose legacy is basically being the guy who proved HBO Max works as a concept and a brand that people can get behind just in time to have it sold to Discovery, who is systematically undoing every single thing Jason Kylar did. 
in order to get us back, I think, to the HBO as the crown jewel prestige cream of the crop. And then I think this gets to my my question I hinted at before. What happens to the HBO Max brand? And I think what that means is the HBO Max brand is not long for this world. And we will soon go back to HBO, classic HBO. It's not HBO Max. It's, it's just HBO. HBO. It's just HBO. <laughs> it's just there. You know, actually, you say this. Uh, John Oliver, uh, who loves to pick on his corporate daddy on HBO, has brought this up <laughs> business recently. Daddy. His business daddy. That's correct. And yet, for some reason, we let the vaccine sit unused on a shelf in our reserves like an expired Chobani or a $90 million movie on HBO Max. <laughs> By the way... Uh, Hi there, new business daddy. Seems like you're doing a really great job. I do get the vague sense that you're burning down my network for the insurance money, but I'm sure that that'll all pass. So, a different way of saying what I think we just said, but with one, one caveat I want to draw there. It's not John Oliver's network that they are burning down for the insurance money. It's John Oliver's streaming service that they're burning down for the insurance money. John Oliver's network, HBO, going to be just fine. I think that many of these Max originals, particularly the ones that have really found their audiences and also some of which have found like some critical acclaim, things like Hacks or um, Our Flag Means Death, will make their way over to HBO or whatever new HBO iteration ends up as a tile in the Discovery Plus app. Yeah. And or whatever we- the new Wabro Disco app is. Monstrous the, you know, app is. Yeah, the, the big letdown at the end of this uh, HBO Max crisis is that all Discovery told us is what we already know. They're going to merge Discovery Plus and HBO Max into a new, unnamed service next year. We already knew that because they told us during the merger that was the reason they wanted to merge. So that mm. part's not shocking, and they didn't give us any of the details, but what's this called? And I think a lot of people uh, are fearing that HBO will be reduced to just a tile, to just a tab within the app. But at the same time, I think if you talk to David Zaslav, uh, CEO of Wabro Disco, he would say, no, we're getting HBO back to what HBO does best. We're actually preserving the core of HBO to make sure that HBO remains HBO. And that, you know, depending on how you look at it, might be a positive. I think they would spin it as we're going to give more resources to HBO and we're going to have HBO take on some of these hit shows from the Max original side. So in a way, in a way, HBO is growing, but overall HBO Max is shrinking. Right. It's also easy to look at this as the preferences and behaviors or sort of personalities of these two uh, corporate leaders. But I think that it's interesting to note that when Kylar was building up HBO Max, that was also part of all these streamers at the time were trying to get more and more and more subscribers. So it was sort of a race for growth. And then we hit this moment of peak TV. (laughs) There was just too much to watch. And now we're seeing this sort of shrinking happen across the market. And so while it may be in some ways Zaz reacting to Kylar, I think it's also him responding to market growth. Yeah, and I think it's what I think he's not going in it with the intention of I want to systematically undo everything Jason Kylar did. But he and Jason Kylar had 
polar opposite visions of what this service Mm -hmm. is going to be. And I think, I do think, or at least you get the vibe, that the people at Discovery are very annoyed that Jason Kylar's team continued to go full steam ahead with their HBO Max and, and CNN Plus strategy right up until the merger closed, when when there was no indication the merger would go off the rails. The merger seemed pretty much like a solid thing. And yet, and yet, we were still spending millions on Batgirl. We were still pitching more movies onto HBO Max, which then David Zaslov's team comes in and says, you know what? Let's just delete them. Let's just get rid of them. Because we never wanted them there to begin with. Right. I still think most of the HBO Max content that is most popular is still out there. So while things like, you know, 200 episodes of Sesame Street is one that people really lost their minds about on Twitter this week. Like, oh my gosh, they're cutting Sesame Street. No one will have access to Sesame Street. You know, Sesame Street should be a public good. Well, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. HBO has been airing Sesame Street for years. That's not a public good. That's a premium cable channel with a streaming component. You can still watch Sesame Street on PBS. You could the whole time. I agree with you that people really went bonkers for this uh, Sesame Street news this week. You have to remember, there are like thousands of episodes of Sesame Street. It's been on for mm-hmm. decades. So getting rid of 200 really old episodes so that you can save a buck while cheap isn't really earth-shattering news. No, as long as one of those episodes isn't the one that your kid demands to watch right. or they'll start screaming, you'll probably be fine Frankly, you probably won't notice, and Sesame Street will continue to air on PBS, though it does air on HBO first. Although I do wonder about that, because Discovery has made it very clear kids and family is not an area they really see HBO Max and that that team going in. We've talked before Mm -hmm. about them getting rid of some of the shows like the Gordita Chronicles. Uh, There's been a lot more cancellations on the animation side, shows that uh, were, were very recently wrapped up gone uh, within months of their their seasons ending. And in the case of the um, very bizarre Ellen, little Ellen cartoon, there's a cartoon about a little Mm -hmm. version of Ellen. Because, you know, the adult version doesn't throw enough tantrums. So we thought, let's make a cartoon about a little version. That airs on HBO Max. And they have a whole finished season they're not even going to put up because HBO Max, I think, rightly said, what is this and why? I think another reason that this has all gotten so much negative press and has gotten these really extreme emotional reactions from people reading this news is that a lot of the creators weren't notified that this was happening. And so then their work was pulled from the app overnight. And for some of these folks, they may not have digital or any sort of copies of this work. So it's just sort of like that content that they'd created has disappeared. And of course, that's really upsetting for folks. And, you know, anyone losing their job, that's very upsetting as well. We don't mean to make light of any of that. But at the same time, some of the reactions have seemed uh, outsized in terms of people, you know, saying "Uh, the full end has come. I think that we're going to keep seeing some of these cutbacks across all of the streaming services. And then it'll sort of start to even out again as we reach a, a sort of new levels of normal. 
Right. And some of this is just mergers 101. These are two mm-hmm. companies that have some duplicative roles. Some people in development are doing the same jobs at both of them, and you just don't need them both. One thing that's really clear is any reality programming that HBO Max was making, if it's any good, it's becoming discovery programming. HBO is not going to be the brand for any reality TV. And in a way, again, I think this gets back to Zaz wanting to uh, get rid of this idea that HBO is everything for everyone, because that's not what HBO traditionally was. And Zaz is a cable man. He loves the idea of being this media mogul, and I think he wants HBO as his crown jewel, as a jewel, not as, you know, they had The Sopranos, and now they make F-Boy Island. Right. Branding-wise, as much as I have the deepest respect for f-boy island that was that was a little bit of a hard sell as one product though putting it all under this huge discovery thing may prove to have similar issues right well then Uh, what's discovery is it everything for everyone that's why the most frustrating part of this to me is that they did not tell us what they're going to call the new streaming app or service, or whatever you want to describe this as. Is it all becoming Discovery, or is it all becoming HBO Max? Probably not, but let's say those are possibilities. Or are they going to launch an entirely new brand, and Discovery is a tab within that brand, and HBO is a tab within that brand, and then maybe like Warner is a tab within that brand? What, what is the overarching brand? And we don't know. And it is a hard question, because last time the people at Warner were faced with this question of what do we call the overarching brand, they came up with HBO Max. So, you know, not an easy thing. Yeah. It's no Peacock Premium Plus. No, it's no Peacock Premium Plus. Or as I recently learned, uh, Hulu Plus. Hulu Plus is not ad-free Hulu and is not Hulu with live TV. It's just if you buy the cheapest ad-supported Hulu, they tell you you have Hulu Plus. And I'm like, plus what? Plus Hulu. Without this, I had no Hulu. So this is just plus Hulu. As opposed to Hulu negative. That's right. Becoming Discovery sounds like a Lifetime movie about... um a woman becoming a stripper. But uh, if any of our listeners have suggestions for what the Wabro Disco large streaming service might be called, please send them send them our way. Podcast at streamageddon.com. We want to hear these ideas. We will pitch them on the air so that Zaz, we know Zaz is out there, so that Zaz can take the best ones. Please give us a good name. If you do, just the end of this has to be a streaming service with a good name. No Quibi, no Go90, nothing with Max in it. Yahoo Streams? Is that what it's called? Yahoo (laughs) Screen. Yahoo Screams. (laughs) We all scream for Yahoo Screen, which, if you don't remember, was a many million dollar money pit that got us the sixth season of Community. So, money well spent. Let me tell you, money well spent. Every penny. But, you know, we should point out, we're talking so much about shows being canceled, movies being erased from HBO Max. If, if you did not catch this, not just did they cancel Batgirl, they took a lot of the Max original movies that have already been released, and they just removed them from HBO Max. You can still buy or rent them from, uh, you know, digital, like Amazon and those places that just sell you the movie. Uh, but the clear indication here is they just want nothing to do with these original films. And so, like, Seth Rogen's mm-hmm. American Pickle, gone. The thing where Cole Sprouse dates a girl on the moon. Gone. So many things. American Pickle. We hardly knew ye. Sadly or 
blessedly. I don't know, because I didn't watch it. And that might be, again, why they're getting rid of some of these things. It's about me specifically. But, you know, uh, I am still watching HBO Max, and I am still watching many Warner Brothers-created properties, and they know that, and they're mm. continuing to make more things. So I wanted to end this this bleak segment on, you know, a, a positive note. Uh, we like to play a little game called Renewed or Cancelled, but this is just one round, and we already know the answer. Uh, Diane, okay. curb your enthusiasm. Uh-huh. Renewed or cancelled? Renewed, ding, coming ding, back ding. for season 12. Just found out this week. That is not the sign that uh, HBO is packing up its bags and going home. That said, if you are one of the many people obsessed with Westworld, you are still, like, slowly clawing your arms like Charlotte Hale, waiting for them to announce that they will greenlight the fifth and final season of Westworld. I think part of the anxiety around all of this is that all these cancellations and the movies and Batgirl, all of it came at once, right around the end of the season of Westworld, which is a show that I don't think ever will financially make sense as a product. Like, I just don't think you're spending, you're getting the money back on that investment, but I do want to see the fifth and final season. And and if you've been watching four seasons of Westworld and they don't give you that fifth and final season, you will actually lose your mind like one of the robot hosts. And I don't want to advocate violence. However, I'm not advocating it. I'm just saying that that's a possibility if you cancel Westworld season five. My impression of Westworld as a non-Westworld viewer is that it is uh, creepy and expensive, which seems to be a winning, yeah. <laughs> a winning formula for HBO these y- days. You know, so <laughs> speaking of creepy and expensive, let's go to Westeros. Yes, we reviewed the pilot, the premiere of House of the Dragon, the new uh, Game of Thrones spinoff on HBO and HBO Max. I don't know why I can't say this with a straight face, but whenever I begin to get into House of the Dragon, I'm saying everything about this just feels uh, deeply absurd. Uh, We should start with a spoiler warning. We are going to Mm. spoil the premiere of House of the Dragon. And in the process, I have no problem spoiling all of Game of Thrones. Um, You know what? It turns out that they're all dead and it takes place in a snow globe and a child is just shaking it. It's, uh, that's it. That, that's exactly it. And if you haven't seen the final season, just go with Chris's ending. Yeah. They, they, Snow globe. They, 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 it ends with them all going to jail because they failed to help a good, uh, a person being mugged on the streets of King's Landing. All the best finales. That's right. I know them all. And they're all how Game of Thrones ended. Because that would be better than how Game of Thrones actually ended. But we're not here to talk about the end of Game of Thrones. We're here to talk about the beginning of a show that is a prequel to Game of Thrones. And I'm already exhausted. Diane, how are you feeling about it? Oh, brother. Well, I'm feeling very torn. I should say. Uh, while since we gave our spoiler warning, I also wanted to give a slight content warning. Uh, we're going to do our best as usual to not use any adult language while we talk about the show. We are family-friendly streaming podcast, but at the same time, a like Game of Thrones, House of the Dragon has very adult content. There's a lot of explicit sex, uh, extreme violence, including sexual violence. And we're going to talk a little bit about that here now. So if that is not content you wish to hear, uh, jump ahead and listen to us talk about the rehearsal. 
Yes, which is uh, dark and triggering for completely different reasons. <laughs> All the daddies. Well, uh, so House of the Dragon. Um, I'll start by saying I was optimistic that some of the plots involving women would be handled better than they were in Game of Thrones. And without going into it too much, they weren't. And it was disappointing. And I, I really, in, in the middle of of watching the show, I texted Chris after one incredibly graphic scene and just said, I hate this. Now, after watching the full episode, I still hate that choice and I find it despicable ethically. But I think there are parts of the show to like. So I'm going to do a little bit of feminism brain turnoff and analyze the show as a show. And I understand some viewers can't do that or choose not to do that. And I congratulate you for that, if that's you. Yes, if you have principles, I really respect that. I don't and will watch any piece of trash you shovel in front of me, uh, like House of the Dragon, which I would describe as, what if you took the interesting drama of Game of Thrones and deeply simplified that and kept all of the really annoying dark cinematography, graphic violence, and bad wigs. Yes. So, House <laughs> of the Dragon takes place 172 years before the events of Game of Thrones. Yes, which and they, follows... they have no subtle way to tell us. They just open with like a narrator no. and some text on the screen. And then they kind of hover on like, before Daenerys. And you're like, why are you reminding me of Daenerys mm. Targaryen right now? I think maybe the biggest Achilles heel of this show, if it is not a hit, which... I, probably is going to be a hit at least for a while but if it's not it's that you know you're basing it on the lineage the history of the character whose ending in the game of thrones actual series was the worst and most unsatisfying you were just constantly reminding us of the greatest failure of the original show that's true that's true i think there were so <laughs> many uh, of the characters in the original series that I think their endings weren't handled properly, but Daenerys was probably the worst. But much of Daenerys' plot before that was really popular, so for anyone who, you know, uh, named their child Daenerys Targaryen, perhaps you will find a little <laughs> redemption in House of the Dragon. Um, which is, again, it's a succession story. It's going to be, you know, a Different siblings warring for the throne. That's pretty much it. Siblings and it, interested parties. Yes, it's it's. We get that there's a king who only has a daughter, and uh, so far no woman has ever ascended to the Iron Throne. And in fact, this king has a sister, and th there was a big decision that they would skip the sister and give the throne to him because there was a big thing. And all of this is just established in the first like three minutes through a voiceover, and they just go, "That's the way it is." And you're like, "Sure." And now he is, you know, uh, not old, but getting up there in years. They are worried that if he dies, there will be a succession crisis. And he's about to have a son, hopefully. His wife is pregnant. And the pilot, what I will say does well, is the structure involves uh, the birth of the son and a kind of festival, uh, a tournament to celebrate the birth of the sun. And of course, you should never plan the celebration before you know that you've got something good to celebrate. That 
is like red flag number one at the beginning of the pilot. Somebody even says to him, are you sure you should be having the tournament before you know that you have an heir? And he's like, oh, no, no, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. And then a scene later, we watch uh, a doctor or a maester, as they call them, uh, help with a really infected wound on the king's back. And you go, this guy, nah, his judgment, it's not going to last, is it? This isn't going to go well for you, is it, sir? And so sure enough, in the middle of his tournament to uh, celebrate his heir, his wife uh, goes into labor, the baby is breached, and in a scene that is graphically violent, and yet I read a criticism that it was not nearly bloody enough because this did not accurately represent the amount of blood that would result uh, from a... uh, you know, a uh, medieval cesarean section. They 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 kill the it's wife by by cutting her open to, birth, yeah. to take the baby out, uh, and it's a horrible scene. And yet, I I do see the the critique that it would have been a lot bloodier in reality. Not that I really wanted that. No, it was interesting because the original pilot for the script had this happen off camera and um, Miguel Sapochnik, who has been with Game of Thrones for a while, he's one of the two co-showrunners of House of the Dragon and he directed this episode. He was the one who wanted the setup of comparing these two things, which in these two events, the um big jousting tournament with this uh murder basically of the queen emma uh in order to attempt to save this baby um it's a horrific scene uh but yeah it it's not historically accurate um partially because we're in a world with dragons but also partially because that's not what um births looked like at that time like she wouldn't have been on her back at all it would have been bloodier so they sort of tried to justify it by saying uh historically these horrible things happen to women and we can't uh shy away from that which is a little bit weird on a show with fire breathing dragons but um again i'm trying i'm trying so hard to just enjoy 65 minutes of you know trash yeah don't yeah. I deserve that too? Yeah. I'm trying. Well, I, I want that for all of us. I do. I just <laughs> wish that this trash was more enjoyable trash. Instead, it it just like I said, there is a lot to critique, as you've said as well, in Game of Thrones and in House of the Dragon and in its depiction of violence and women, and there are so many very valid criticisms to make there. Put all of that <laughs> aside. What was really groundbreaking about Game of Thrones when it first came out in a lot of ways, is that it was high fantasy for an adult audience, which was weird at the time because high fantasy was mostly associated with kids, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings. And it was a drama with a really deep, intricate, soap opera-like plot where you had to follow all these different characters and all these different stories and all these different places. And, And House of the Dragon could get there. I would say the initial way the story was set up on House of the Dragon does not remind me of the pilot of Game of Thrones. The pilot of Game of Thrones, Mm. you basically know who none of these people are. You watch a brother and sister have sex in a tower and push a little boy out of a window, paralyzing him, and you go, what is going on here? Meanwhile, in the pilot of House of the Dragon, they're like, so it's 172 years before Daenerys Targaryen, and women aren't allowed to get on the throne, and here's a new woman. She's a younger woman. We like her. She rides a dragon. Now, her father, you literally spoon-fed me 
I don't want to be spoon-fed the story. That is not why I watched Game of Thrones. I did not like a lot of the, the high fantasy violence in Game of Thrones. What I liked was the backstabbing and the twists. I did like the backstabbing and the twists. And there were a few moments in this pilot that I felt like, ooh, okay, I'm seeing some machinations. I'm seeing some whispers happening. Like, that was always the fun part about the jousting tournaments on Game of Thrones is you have these people who are in remote parts of these seven kingdoms coming together. And so you see all this deceitfulness happening and tricks are afoot. There wasn't as much of that yet, and I hope that they lean into that. Another thing that I think really made uh, Game of Thrones so good when it was good is that they killed off Ned Stark. Yeah. <laughs> and they were willing to kill off a main character. I think it was episode nine of the first season, and that really changed the rules of premium TV, I think. And I hope that this show will find new ways to be inventive in their narrative that don't just mean we can do even more shocking violence yeah because it's not just that it was violent i worry that they're boxed in a little bit because you mm. cannot ned stark dying in season one of game of thrones lightning in a bottle you cannot recreate that shock that moment just killing off matt smith or whoever from this show that will not give the same effect because you can't you can't shock me like that again this game of thrones eventually got to the level of the red wedding you're killing off like half the characters and you right. know what that that just that only worked when i'd gotten to know those characters so well and could not fathom all of them dying you know, that is not yeah. the position that we're in with this show. We don't know these people yet, so they can't just rush to starting to kill them because that has no stakes. And even then, if we do get to know them and then it is a big deal that one of them dies, it's still not going to have the impact. And so if they're looking to raise the stakes and, and heighten this show, I'm afraid that they're just going to go, well, what do we have? We have violence and we have dragons. I don't want that. Incest? It's, well, no, even the incest has been done. We had a whole, right. we had a whole plot line. We had a whole really good, juicy, twisted relationship between two of the just absolutely cringiest and wonderful characters on that show. The problem is, like, Game of Thrones, for its many flaws, had phenomenal characters, and it is really hard to go into this and not immediately start comparing the new characters you're meeting and going, yeah, well, he's no Littlefinger. Littlefinger, like, made me, like, giggle with joy whenever he showed up in a scene. You're no Littlefinger. I also think part of the reason that we're making comparisons to Game of Thrones is that it asks us to yes. so much throughout this pilot. I mean, they show Rhaenyra, who is the princess here, who, by the end of the pilot, has become the heir to the Iron Throne, the first woman heir to the Iron Throne. They show her coming off a dragon. She's got the blonde braid. I mean, she looks like Daenerys. It's such a clear... It's it's so uh, it's it's hitting the nose it's hitting the nose on the head it's hitting the nail on the head it's punching me in the face and my nose hurts i everything about this pilot was so unsubtle all the way down to matt smith's horrible wig that just made me want to scream mm -hmm. at the tv and then they put a crazy helmet on him i think because they were embarrassed about the wig you know I'm sure I feel bad for these designers. I don't know what you do. Not not a lot of people can pull off bleach blonde hair. These are obviously very 
above average looking folks and they do look so very silly in these in these wigs um though i think that the hair was bad in the in the game of thrones pilot if you go back and watch um that's true they had not gotten jamie their, like, looked like he was that bad guy that's from it. shrek that, that was the pilot of game of thrones over 10 years ago at this point yeah it didn't look as good because they didn't have the budget that they have now you should you should have learned all of the lessons of production design from game of thrones and be able to apply them to at least make matt smith's hair look like hair luckily it'll be so poorly lit (laughs) that's true (laughs) no one will see the most brutal bloody and gratuitous scene in the pilot is not the the cesarean that needs more Mm -hmm. blood Uh, we may maybe we'll debate this (laughs) offline but it's the scene where matt smith who's got his city watch matt smith is the the king's younger brother who would inherit the throne had they not just announced rhaenyra is going to inherit the throne so he's obviously going to be kind of an antagonist He's got skin in the game here. He wants the Iron Throne for himself. And in order to appease him in the meantime, he's been made uh, kind of head of the city watch, like the the chief of police. He's the Herbert Hoover of King's Landing at the time. And he decides what he's going to do is just round up a bunch of suspected criminals. They don't really seem to have any due process here and just like disembowel them all. Slice off arms. There was a lot of chopping and stabbing, but it was so dimly lit. I don't know what body parts they were removing. There was definitely a part where it looked like a sword went up a butt. But then they threw some organ down. And I was like, I don't know what organ that is. And I don't know where it came from. I mean, someone was certainly castrated and there was an, a decapitation. Uh, so I think you know, the, the body off. count is high again. Yeah. yeah, but good news, you can't see any of it, so whatever. Is that a blessing? I don't know. I did find this easier to follow than the original Game of Thrones pilot. Again, I'm not sure if that's a good thing. They have nine more episodes this season to continue to complicate things. One of the characters I was interested in was um, Otto Hightower, who is the Hand of the King, and his daughter, Alicent Hightower, who is basically Rhaenyra's best friend, though I think that we'll probably see that relationship deteriorate. Alicent and Rhaenyra had one of the best written scenes, I think, in the episode. It just actually sounded like people talking. And uh, Otto Hightower, you can see he's definitely doing some sneaky stuff behind the scenes. He sent a letter that seemed like it was saying bad things about Damon. He's sending Alicent in to uh, comfort the uh, grieving king. So I think basically pimping out his daughter, uh, which is very creepy and disturbing. But again, this is Game of Thrones. Yes, so that's par for the course. It was not the most disgusting thing in the episode, but it's it's pretty gross, uh, particularly because they did make her so childlike. Um, but yeah, the the tension building between Damon and Otto Hightower, I think, had potential for some interesting things afoot. And I'm also excited about everything happening with the pirates. 
Yeah, there is like the promise of pirates and actual fighting with other people outside the city. I think the the real test for me will be when they get outside the city and they sprawl out a little bit more. Does the story start to get more engaging than just this again really simplified political intrigue plot so far? It, it, mm-hmm. Game of Thrones has done really good political intrigue, and I find it so odd that this show, where they know that you know what the backstory is, like you're coming in with knowledge even if you did not finish game of thrones you're coming into this series with knowledge about what's going on and yet they seem like instead of of taking that and using it as a way to say okay we can kind of jump start and go a little bit further a little faster they're like no we want to be sure that we that we know that you are you know who everyone is exactly right we, we just need to make sure you're 100 percent clear on who everybody is here and i'm like i don't know you've got like all these episodes for me to figure that out i feel like you're babying me right now i agree with you i think that's a fair criticism i will say by season three or four of game of thrones i think that frequently the dialogue did not advance the plot and so you would have long stretches that were either just gratuitous torture or violence or long stretches where it was just people saying exposition to each other and then some big event happening so the fact that like one thing led to another in this pilot was refreshing to me, which should be, you know, basic dramatic writing, but because that's not really what was fundamental to Game of Thrones, I found that more enjoyable to watch. Wow. The bar is low, but we can clear it <laughs> uh, if we are just, if we're just honest with ourselves here in Westeros. Uh, that That is, I think, a fair... And listen, I'm being a little negative, but I'm gonna finish the season. I want to see where they're going with this story. And if there is a little more intrigue, a bigger twist coming, if they're, if they're just making sure that we've got the foundation down, and now that we've got mm-hmm. the foundation down, they're ready to just run with it. And they could be. And I would not blame them if their choice at the end was we wanted to make sure the pilot was dead simple to understand because we wanted to be sure that everybody could get on board, even if you didn't finish Game of Thrones, even if you forgot everything that happened on Game of Thrones. And that's fair. Pilots have a lot of work to do. Or make it simple enough that you forget what happened at the end of Game of Thrones. I think they're Maybe. they're hoping for that in a big way. In a big way. Um, also, I think George R. R. Martin, the creator of the game of thrones series and uh the fire and blood the book that this is based on uh is pretty involved with this perhaps even more involved and he's written the end of this story in some ways that makes me uh more optimistic um they also have a a few women writers on staff i'm excited about that um uh miguel sapachnik who i mentioned before who did this episode uh did the Battle of the Bastards, which was one of the better episodes of Game of Thrones, I think. So I don't know. I'm I'm going to keep watching. Yeah, yeah, same. And there is something to be said for it's a hit so far. And there, mm-hmm. it's exciting to see a lot of people all tuning in, you know, appointment viewing in a way that, that we I haven't seen since, like, Squid Game. I don't even think Stranger Things hit this height of appointment viewing that we are getting just a bit again with House of the Dragon. Totally. And I find myself when I watch this show wanting to go back and like 
be like, oh, who were the Valerians? I don't remember their whole family history. And uh, really allowing myself to just dive into their nerdiness of it. So I think as the plot continues to be more complex, it'll just be more and more satisfying if they let themselves go there. If they do. Fingers crossed. Yeah. And if they can, you know, eventually get me to accept that all of these people are platinum blonde and there's nothing I can do about it. Yeah. <laughs> they really, they could go, you know, some other shades of blonde. They I could just, do it. I just, that was, ha. Ah, well, you know, you had to make the prequel about the blonde people. You had to. I just, ah. Yeah. Uh, Steve Toussaint is the really uh, refreshing, it's refreshing that we have a black character in the main cast. Uh, a black character in the main, yes. I mean, I mean, honestly, he was great in the pilot. Yeah, I, I'm really excited about him. I, I think that hopefully they'll give him some interesting stuff to do. I think his kids will be characters too. So uh, uh, seeing Game of Thrones diversify their world would be a more than welcome change. Right. And, and, you know, as we loop back to our conversation about HBO and HBO Max, there is a lot riding on the success of this. There are many more uh, Game of Thrones spinoffs, both live action and animated, that are at least in some stage of development. And if this is a huge success through the first season, they're going to make another season of this no matter what, mm -hmm. based on the ratings for mm -hmm. the, the pilot. But if this continues to be a big success through the season, I am sure they're going to move forward with at least one more spinoff, if not multiple at this point. Uh, and you could definitely see a strategy like what uh, Disney has done with a lot of the Star Wars stuff, where there's an animated strategy and a live action strategy running in parallel. And and I think that's the dream for HBO right now, is they really want to go full franchise with Game of Thrones. And House of the Dragon is the test. If this is the test, I don't think it's bad enough that it's not going to happen. I don't think it's perfect, but I don't think it's bad enough that it's not going to happen. High praise. High praise that you can only get here on Streamageddon. And, you know, we have another show we want to sh just shower our praise on. Uh, and that is uh, a show that we already reviewed. We do this thing. We call it our Rewind Review. So let let's just go right into it. Our Rewind Review of Nathan Fielder's The Rehearsal. If you do not recall, we reviewed uh, the first couple episodes, the, the first episode of the rehearsal. I, I, the the mm -hmm. rehearsal is so deeply embedded in my mind now. I do not know of time before the rehearsal. I do not know when the rehearsal began or ended. All of life just feels like a rehearsal. Nathan Fielder would be proud. Would he? <laughs> or horrified. I don't know. We're playing right into his hands everything is going according to plan we will now be discussing all six episodes the full season so there will be some spoilers you've been alerted to the fact this is spoilers for existence spoilers for life because the rehearsal this occurred to me this occurred to me um in our preparation for this week's episode coming back from our break we were both really excited about the season finale of the rehearsal when we realized mm. it would time out for this episode I, I can tell through text message that you were excited as i was and then as we agreed to it i thought in the back of my head you know this is sort of a nonfiction show. Do we review nonfiction shows? And then I thought, no, this show is fiction. It's all fiction. This is absolutely in our wheelhouse. And at the end of the day, Diane, I don't know. Is this a, a nonfiction show or a fiction show? Ooh, 
tricky. I would say it's uh, scripted, but it's in the field of reality. I think he's certainly interested in genre bending. Is it a comedy? I I, uh, I laughed. I, I struggle to apply any genre label to this show, which, you know, began with a, in hindsight, simple premise that in no way is simple when I begin to describe it. But, you know, the concept for the pilot is that Nathan recruits these ordinary people to elaborately rehearse real life events that they are anxious about or want to explore more fully. And so the first episode is about this guy, Core, who wants to reveal to his trivia friend that he's been lying about his level of education all these years. And they thoroughly rehearse this with an actor playing the friend. The actor, like, actually goes and finds the friend in reality in order to learn their personality and mannerisms. They're in a bar that's fully recreated in a soundstage. And you think, okay, each episode, he's going to get another person. He's going to go through this extremely elaborate rehearsal process again. And the second episode starts that way with a woman named Angela who wants to rehearse having a child and raising the child through all the years of, of raising a child. Not just, you know, oh, I'm going to have a baby for a week, but let's actually go from baby to toddler to, you know, seven-year-old to teenager to the whole spectrum of raising a child compressed into a shorter amount of time through the magic of child actors being swapped out every eight hours. And that, okay, that felt like in line with the first episode, a bigger project. It does not finish in a single episode, so they leave it to continue in the Mm -hmm. next episode. And you begin to think, okay, so some of this is going to spread over multiple episodes. And then he begins to rehearse other rehearsals while still involved in Angela's rehearsal. Then he involves himself in Angela's rehearsal by beginning to play the father in the house where Angela is playing the mother. And that's when the show evolves, let's say. I, I, I almost said goes off the rails, but it is fully on Nathan Fielder's rails the entire time. But he gives oh, yeah. you the premise, the sense, that all of this builds to this completely dissociative feeling that you have uh, by the end of the season, where you, you, you wonder, who is, who is deciding what's happening right now? I, I, it's not clear that Nathan is in control, and I think he wants it that way. Yeah, I did find it to be a very alienating experience, even though I have found some community in discussing it with people because it's such a weird show that like when you find people who are Nathan Fielder fans and he's having a big moment right now, so it's not like they're hard to find. But when you find people who can nerd out with you about Nathan Fielder, it's like, oh, yes, this is so exciting. But the experience of watching it is a little alienating, which is interesting as a show that really seems to be about Nathan learning to develop feelings. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the season, it really begins to hinge on Nathan wanting to lose himself fully in the rehearsal. And there is a point Mm -hmm. Angela leaves the show. And and that has become its own meta narrative because Angela has been giving interviews outside of the show that just leave you with even more questions about what happened. You would think it would reveal something like, oh, she's angry about how she was betrayed or, oh, it turns out that she was in on it all along. And instead, everything she says makes me just go, how, what, what do you think we think? I, every time she talks now, I go, what do you think we think about you? And, and what are you trying to tell us? Yes, she's a very odd one. I do think part of what they did brilliantly with casting is find 
really strange folks and i guess that the prompt in itself like hey do you want to rehearse something that you're anxious about for hbo is going to elicit strange responses and it seems like they did a great job in casting these folks um there are so many characters and people really willing to do completely humiliating and offensive things on camera that again which we talked about in our first review bring up ethical issues like are we allowed to laugh at them uh is it okay that we're laughing at this whole scenario and i think by the end i've moved past that to the sense of like uh they chose to be here and there's nothing that we're doing at this point that is more wrong than they want to uh, than what they want us to be doing yeah, and 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 the show smartly interrogates that that feeling, that concern that are these people being taken advantage of, and what what kind of person would do this? And it, it does it in a couple of ways. But in the season finale, we get two sides of it, and and the season finale is very emotional because it hinges largely on mm. a, a really young child actor who won't stop referring to Nathan as his daddy. And they've aged out of that child in the rehearsal. So that child has been replaced by an older child now. And the young child doesn't want to leave. He throws a tantrum. He wants to go back to Nathan. Then we find out from the child's mother. And this is where I think it gets to your point of like, well, the mother signed the child up for this fully knowing what she was signing the child up for and could have pulled the child out at any time and chose not to. So while I I definitely felt very, very concerned for this child at, at a certain point in the episode, I also had that same feeling of, well, everyone's here, they aired it, and the, th- this is a more interesting question of what kind of mother who tells Nathan, well, he doesn't have, uh, his father's not in his life, he's never had a father, and so having you play his father He's now grabbed onto that, and you are not Nathan, you are Daddy, and he won't stop referring to Nathan as Daddy. And they they spend a good portion of the season finale trying to just help this child get past that and, and see Nathan as just a person named Nathan again, his friend, not his father. Uh, and that that was very cringy very emotional, Mm -hmm. seemed to end in a good place. And you also get the sense that children of that age are really resilient. And while they do get very worked up and very attached to certain things, they also move past those things very quickly once they get they get over it or get older or find a new thing to grab onto. And so while there is a chance this child has been scarred by appearing on the rehearsal, I'm going to bet he has not been. And instead, it it really asked a lot of questions about what kind of person volunteers their child to do this, which is what he wants us to ask. What kind of person actually puts this entire thing together and tries to lose himself in it? And ultimately, Nathan goes to such an extreme level that he then constructs a rehearsal for himself where he is the mother of the child. And then there's an actor playing Nathan, who we've seen before as the the guy who plays Nathan, and I really enjoyed him coming back in the finale. And we have Nathan go through being the parent on set watching the fake child and the fake Nathan reenact the events that led to the real child becoming emotionally attached to the real Nathan all while also giving us an image of what it was like for the participants to be backstage with the PAs and other people. And there is the moment in the finale where the PA (laughs) says to Nathan playing the mother, he's kind of a weird guy, talking about fake Nathan. 
He is kind of a he weird is. guy. That's isn't the he? thing. So it's the show. It, Nathan saying, "Yes, I know. Yes, yes." Mm-hmm. If you've been wondering all this time, is this super weird to watch as we make it? Yes, and everyone involved had their place to sit and watch it as we made it, and they all went, "Yeah, okay, we're making this thing where my child calls this strange man daddy." Mm-hmm. That being said, it's really captivating. As you can tell by my inability to stop talking, it is like you get sucked into it. I was definitely sucked into it. And I think one of the things that really did keep me coming back, which we didn't even address that much the first time we reviewed it because we were so (laughs) compelled by the structure, is how funny it is. There are moments in every episode where I just like burst out laughing in both shock and also with the cleverness of how he constructed this world. There's a Um, subplot through the whole season of just Nathan revealing people's casual anti-Semitism that is both horrifying and... I laughed so hard at some of those moments because he's able to construct th- these moments with such a straight face. And, you, and you're like, he, he, there is a moment. I'm just, I, I cringe thinking about it. And yet I laughed so hard. There's a moment in the finale where he's explaining to one of the child actors, he's, he, he's trying to explain what the, the difference between Christianity and Judaism are, essentially, because he was making a point of raising his fake child as Jewish, in part to get under the skin of Angela, who wanted to raise the child, not just Christian, but like, Jewish people, they're bad. <laughs> Like, mm-hmm. like it, it wasn't subtle in a lot of ways. In fact, in, in every way, it was not subtle. And so you, you have this happen with Angela first. And then there's another participant where there's some real casual anti-Semitism. And you think, like, God, these people are consenting to let, the, let Nathan air them saying these things. Which, at this point, they might have had no way to get out of it. But also, I'm not sure they were ashamed. Angela, mm-hmm. at, at least, has given no impression that she has any doubts about any of the things she said on this show. And and then we see one of the stage moms making Nathan explain to her little child that Judaism isn't really a religion. That no, 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 that was all for play and for acting. And I am screaming because it's the way Nathan just says it is so funny. And at the same time, I'm like, is is this real? Because if this is real, you you should not be telling the child this. You're making it worse, right? Oh, yeah. It, it's certainly very concerning, though I do wonder how many of the people who watch this will, uh, you know, see themselves on television and perhaps feel some regret. I mean, it does feel like a reflection of where we are right now culturally that there are so many people willing to say these sort of things on television um it also i think goes to this craven need for being seen and for attention um that i think nathan has a really good technique at exposing um a big part of the show and that i really liked was the exploration of just performance in general and sort of the ethics of it and how much we perform in our everyday lives and the way that people are willing to lie and disseminate and ooh, just show their depravity is stunning sometimes funny sometimes scary 
the show lets it be all those things at once, which is why for me, it's so, so good. Yeah, it actually is a real succinct way of describing the overwhelming feeling of watching this show. And and I think if you're willing to experience some, some uncomfortable moments and a, perhaps a sense of being totally overwhelmed by what you're seeing, there's a lot to experience and learn from that. It, it is a weird show in that it's a little more of an experience than a show. Mm-hmm. Is, was there any particular part that you are most excited about or that you hope they're going to keep going with in season two? Uh, on the day that they released the finale, they also announced that they'll be coming back with season two. And I personally, I have no idea what it could look like or really what I want it to look like, though I am glad it's coming back. I feel the exact same way. I would not even dare to make a prediction about what season two is going to be like because Nathan will prove me wrong. And, you know, the best I could hope for is that he does something as unexpected as this season. I I described it when we were talking before the show that the final episode... Uh, and, and admittedly, I'm stealing some of this insight from a review at the AV Club, which is very good. And the final episode uh, has a, a, an interesting pacing to it where it speeds mm. up and begins to go through more ridiculous sets of, the, of Nathan rehearsing his own rehearsal within the rehearsal. It, it really begins to kind of go inception on itself. And the pacing reflects that. And it gets a little more manic. And it begins to feel like it's spiraling out of control. And there was a moment, like two minutes left in the episode, where I suddenly realized there were only two minutes left in the episode and I had no idea how they were going to wrap up the season, let alone the scene I was watching. And it all builds to this moment where Nathan, in the rehearsal of being the mother of the child actor, is with the child actor playing the child actor if you can follow that. And so this is like a, a slightly older child playing the really young child who became attached to him. So this kid is is more, uh, you know, adult. It's still a child, but ha- is aware that he's playing a character and that he is in a rehearsal with Nathan pretending to be a mother. Like, th- this kid gets it and is playing the role really well. And in fact, like, that child actor and one of the other child actors they highlighted in the fifth episode, some mm. amazing child actors. And, and, and in this moment, all of this builds to this moment where Nathan is like with the kid and going, I am your, your, he's supposed to say, I am your mother. And he goes, I am your dad. Mm. And the child actor goes, don't, don't you mean mom? And Nathan with this scary look in his eyes is like, no, I'm your dad. And you go, oh, he lost himself in the rehearsal. This is the whole thing. He's been building to this moment. He's been making a big deal out of the rehearsals aren't real enough. They, they, they aren't working because there's people aren't fully inhabiting the rehearsal. And then he feels like he's not fully inhabiting the rehearsal. And he goes to these extreme lengths to get him to this point of essentially mania where he loses himself in the character. And what I love about that moment is it's constructed. I, I do right. not I do not believe for a second that Nathan actually had a breakdown and lost himself in a character going, I am your your father. I, I just he's he's too in control of what we're seeing and feeling for that. And that was such a surprisingly satisfying conclusion. And I don't know where you go from there. I just don't. No, and well, even then, as he like gets up to walk away too, there's a moment where very briefly you can see his butt, and I feel like it takes us yes. from profundity to 
Yes, and there's the and there's a thing to that of like, did he intend that, or was that the beautiful serendipity? Because he is still right. somebody who finds these absolutely unplannable moments of serendipity that are so funny or so insightful or so human. And his real talent is being able to, you know, be in control of this bigger, bigger, crazy idea and then find those moments that are unexpected and unplanned that feed into the the overall project. And he is so good at that. And it is such a weird and specific skill that he shares with like John Wilson, which Nathan Fielder is a producer on How To with John Wilson because mm-hmm. they are that same kind of weird, I think. And that's it. Those are like the two people I could tell you who have this extremely specific odd talent that reveals so much about the the people that they focus on, the subjects of their work. Yeah, it seems like with this one, HBO really kind of let him do what he wanted. Another running joke is that how much money he's spending these bits on these elaborate sets and all these actors and everything which is just so funny it's so funny but um i hope that they continue to give him free reign and i could see people trying like other networks seeing the success of this show and trying to recreate it and it just not working because you need this particular alchemy yeah Yeah, you know, what I can hope is that other networks see this level of experimentation and go, wow, if we find somebody who is a singular talent at what they do, let's give them the bank and tell them, go go wild, do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. Um, The worst thing they could do is go, can you make a show that's like the rehearsal? Because I don't want to see that. I definitely don't want to see, like, Netflix attempt the rehearsal. Mm, No. Nope. Just dwelling in the awkwardness. <laughs> feels so the right. Thought, it feels cringe. so right. Uh, well, there you have it. The rehearsal. Our favorite show that maybe isn't the type of show we're supposed to review on this podcast, and yet we did. Because he was he was telling us a story all along, and we are here to talk about the stories that are told on TV and streaming. That's what we do here on Streamageddon. We like to talk about the biz, but the biz is just how we tell the stories can't have the stories without the biz and so while the biz might be wild and life at hbo might be a little stormy that's okay because they still tell great stories and as long as we can figure out what it will take to get them to name the new streaming service something good we'll be okay until next time i can put up with these dragons if it means i get more nathan fielder projects so fair. I will, if the requirement is I have to sit through every single episode of House of the Dragon, no matter how bored I am, I will. Even if it only gets me 30 minutes of Nathan Fielder for every <laughs> 70 minutes of House of the Dragon, fine, fine. I know it's a bad investment. I it, There is something so priceless about the fine work that they're making at HBO. I'll, I'll be there for all of it. And you, listener, can be there for it, too. Or you can just listen to us. Yeah, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Write to us, podcast at streamageddon.com. We will be back in your feeds next week when we are going to talk about another hot new show called She-Hulk, Attorney at Law. I am cautiously very optimistic, which is what I've said about several Marvel shows, and I am always complaining by the end. So get excited, everybody. It's time for another <laughs> one of those. Happy She-Hulk. <laughs>
And of course, we'll have another Rewind review, bringing you the end of season two of Only Murders in the Building. So if you're finishing that season, get caught up and join us again next week. Tell a friend about the podcast. And until then, keep on streaming. Have a great week.